Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome back to our Sira episodes. So last time we spoke about the terrible persecution that the early converts were having to suffer. Um, and we also mentioned, um, we, we talked through some of the lessons that could be learned through this suffering that they had to go through. But when the, um, you know, all the troubles that were befalling them, all the persecution that they were going through, when it became too much, then the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was given permission by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell these early converts that they were allowed to leave Mecca if they wanted to. It was a permission. They, you know, it wasn't a command. They didn't have to. Um, but they were now given permission. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, told them that, they should go to Abyssinia. So Abyssinia in modern geography is Ethiopia. And if you have a look at the map, you'll see that the peninsula of Arabia is separated from Ethiopia, modern day Ethiopia, or in those days, Abyssinia, by a stretch of water, which is the Red Sea. So for them to take, um, so to, for them to travel and to go to Abyssinia. And the reason that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, told them that they should go there is because they said that the, he said that there was a king there in Abyssinia that did not oppress his people and that they would be able to go there and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, with no persecution to, you know, to compare to what they were facing there in Mecca. So from this, actually, we can see how beautifully that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, how much care and concern as a leader that he had. He could have been more concerned about keeping all the Muslims with him so that they had a strong you know, force with him that he had more support. But obviously he was more concerned um, as to their treatment and the fact that they were being tortured. And the other thing that you can see from this is how the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, also was aware of geopolitics, we could say. He knew that the Najashi, the Nagus, the, the, the one who was in control of Ethiopia, of Habasha, was tolerant of other faiths living in his land. Not only that, but he was a Christian himself, a believing Christian himself. And so all these things put together, he tells them to go to Habasha, to Abyssinia, to make that journey. And we know that there was a group of about 15 or 16 Muslims that went. They were mainly men, but there were four women also in that group. They were the wives of four of the men. And one of the, the men that went at that time was none other actually than Uthman, may Allah be pleased with him, and his wife Ruqayya, may Allah be pleased with her. And Ruqayya is the daughter, the second oldest daughter of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And although Uthman, may Allah be pleased with him, wasn't from like the lower class of that society, but it was in fact his own family that would tie him up and treat him badly. So they left and they went at night, this group of, of Muslims, they went and, and made their way to a port that was on the edge of Arabia and the Red Sea. And they really didn't have, they couldn't take much with them. They needed to make sure that they left in a very kind of low key way to make sure that the Quraysh weren't aware that they were going. So they couldn't take much with them. 
and they li- literally only had like a, a half a gold coin that they could give to um, a sailor of a boat, a very small boat, and he took them across the sea. And when they got to Ethiopia, when they got to Habisha, they did exactly as the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, had advised them to do. Because he had told them, when you go there, you know, keep a low profile. Um, don't don't create any bother. Just live quietly and peacefully. And actually, they didn't even live in one of the main cities, but just on the outskirts. And that was really to make sure that that they wouldn't cause a problem for themselves. And actually, the local people did obviously see that there was a group of foreigners, a small group of foreigners that had come to live there. But, you know, they just let them be um, and let them live peacefully. But back in Mecca, when the Quraysh realized that this group had left, they basically sent out like a task force to get them back. But but it was too late. The, the information had come too late, late. So the Quraysh were definitely not happy that they got away. And if anything, they stepped up the bad treatment and the persecution and the torture of the remaining Muslims. And actually also what they did was they sort of put border patrols in to make sure that no one else, you know, no group like that could leave again. So that was what you could call the first migration to Habisha to Ethiopia. But a couple of months after this small group of Muslims had gone, something actually pretty momentous happened in Mecca. And this was now in Ramadan. The Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, he entered the Haram, he entered to the area of the Kaaba, just as he would normally, he began praying. Now, the Quraysh didn't like this, but there was nothing much that he could do about it because he was essentially protected by his uncle Abu Talib, who was one of the leaders of Mecca, and they couldn't go against that form of protection. So although they didn't like it, they had to put up with it. But this time, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, he actually started to recite the Qur'an out loud. And so you, this is around the Kaaba. It's like the city centre, if you like, town square. And you always, ha- always have people there. And you had some of the leaders of Mecca there at the time when he did this. And so they came a little bit closer. First of all, because they were going to stop him, they thought, OK, fair enough. If you're going to do your thing and you're going to pray, ugh, we have to put up with it. But we're not putting up with this. We're not putting up with you loudly reciting these words. But as they came closer, they actually just stopped and started listening. They were so struck by what they heard that, I mean, usually what they used to do was they would make loud noises, maybe clap, maybe talk really loudly, whistle, whatever, make really loud noises so that they would drown out anything that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was saying. But this time the words were so powerful that they literally just stood there and listened. The Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was reciting from the 53rd surah of the Qur'an, the 53rd chapter, it was Surah Al-Najm. And in this surah, in this chapter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by showing the idol worshippers how ridiculous their understanding of their way of thinking is. And then the surah builds up, the ayahs build up some very powerful words where Basically, the Quraysh, the the disbelievers, they're being warned of the punishment. And finally, right at the end of the surah, it ends with a command to prostrate 
to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make sujood. So when the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, got to that final ayah, he made sujood. And subhanAllah, because of the power of these words, all of the people there, all of the Quraysh there, they all made sujood as well. And including like people like Abu Jahl was there, you know, the main enemy of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, the, the main enemy of Islam. Even he made sujood. And this just shows us this is the power of Allah's words, that even the enemies of the truth were absolutely compelled to obey when they heard this. So after they get up from the prostration, obviously everybody must have been looking at each other to say, oh my goodness, what did we just do? Um, but what they got away with it by saying, oh, this was just extra strong magic from the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And, you know, that's why, of course, we don't believe in any of this. But as is human nature, these kind of things spread, don't they? Rumors will spread. And the rumors that were spreading were actually that the Quraysh had accepted Islam. And this rumor spread all the way to Abyssinia, to Habasha, to Ethiopia, where that small group of converts were living you know, quietly and peacefully. And when they heard this, can you imagine how they must have felt? I mean, they've had to leave their homes because of the fact that everybody who has any power in that city is causing them such difficulty, such persecution that they've had to leave, had to leave all their things behind them, all the things that they're familiar with. They've left it all and they've gone to this other country and okay fair enough you know they're not being persecuted there but still they're refugees this is not their home country they don't speak the language this isn't what they're used to so when they hear that everybody in their hometown is now muslim and they think well great we can go back everything is going to be fine so that's what they do they start to travel back and they're traveling and when they get to just outside of mecca they meet some of the meccans there and the Meccans look at them and recognize who they are and say, you're the ones who left like a couple of months ago. How come you, you're coming back? So they said, oh, you know, we heard that the Quraysh have all accepted Islam. And the Meccans said to them, no, that's not what's happened at all. So, oh, my gosh, I, can't, I cannot actually imagine how they must have felt. They traveled all the way back to hear that actually it was just a false rumor. So most of them then literally pick up whatever bags they have, turn round and start making the journey back to Habisha. But there's a couple of them who actually say, you know what, let's just uh, let's just put up with whatever happens. We're here now. Let's just stay in our hometown of Mecca. And because of this, because you have these couple of people that have stayed, you now literally have in Mecca first hand experience. These people can give you first hand experience of what it was like to live as a refugee in Ethiopia, in Habasha. And so they tell the other Muslims, look, yes, okay, obviously there's a journey involved and journeying at that time is very difficult. It's not, it's not like it is today. Even today we, we travel and we still get really tired and we don't like the fact that we've had to sit cramped up maybe, whatever, but those days obviously it's so much more difficult. So they say to them, okay, yes, there is a journey involved, but actually, Life in Habasha is very peaceful. Everybody just leaves you alone. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't make trouble. Just, you can worship as you want. So now, now that the Quraysh, ever since that small group of Muslims left 
Mecca those couple of months ago, and they've stepped up the persecution. And now these couple of uh, Muslims are telling you, actually, it's okay. You know, you can go and live somewhere where you're not persecuted and you can still be Muslim. Then it seems like a good plan to all these other Muslims who maybe were a bit unsure before about whether they should leave Mecca. So what happens now is that in the next coming weeks, altogether about 80 Muslims leave Mecca. Now, this is this is almost all of the Muslims that exist, you know, at that time. But they leave in dribs and drabs, obviously making sure they leave at night, leave quietly, not making any fuss, not taking too much with them so that nobody can tell that they're actually leaving town. And now you've got quite a sizable group of Muslims in Habasha. Roughly, you'll have about 100 because there were, you know, about 15, 16, whatever from the first time. And now you've got another 80 that are joining them. And amongst them, you've got some of, you know, some names that people will have heard of. So you've got Uthman ibn Affan with his wife, Ruqayya, may I be pleased with him. They went that first time. And you've got people like Mus'ab ibn Umayr, may Allah be pleased with him. Now, his name will come up later on in the seerah when we talk about when the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, sent Mus'ab to Medina. At the time, it was known as Yathrib, then it became known as Medina. And he sent him as a diplomat to speak to the people of Yathrib about the religion of Islam. And then you've got people like Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. So this is the son of Abu Talib. This is the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. So these these were there in Habasha. They'd actually gone in that first group of Muslims that had gone. Actually, the first group of Muslims that had gone, that very few, that small band of Muslims that had gone. You had some big names in there. You had some people who were from not the, the the slave class of society. You had the ones that actually, even though they had protection amongst their community, they still chose to leave because they wanted to practice their faith without any any persecution and any difficulty. And we know that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, gave all these Muslims permission to go to Habasha. And he had said why he had chosen Habasha. But also, let's have a think about some of the lessons that we can take from this, from their leaving Mecca. Well, first and foremost, we can see that they did take precautions. They didn't all just kind of get up one morning, pack their bags and, you know, just leave in one big group. They left in dribs and drabs. They left, you know, quietly at night to make sure that they didn't cause any attention to themselves. And these are people who are living with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu So these are that first community who's like their level of faith. We'll never even understand how high that level of faith is. Yet still they took their precautions. They had absolute full trust in Allah, but still they took their precautions. So this is a lesson to us that, yes, you know, trust in Allah, but do your own best. Do Put your own precautions in place whenever you're doing something. Make sure you've researched it, just like the Prophet Muhammad did. He had understanding of where these Muslims could go and form a base. And that's just it. This is one of the things 
that the Prophet Muhammad possibly, possibly was doing by sending the Muslims away. Like I said, it would have been easier for him to have a supportive group there with him, but he sent them away so that in case things didn't work out as he thought they might, there was this other base that was in place now for the Muslims to go to and to live with some sort of security. But this thought obviously had then occurred to the Quraysh as well. Now, when they found out that this quite a large group now of Muslims has gone, you know, they're looking around, they can hardly see any Muslims left in Mecca. And they think, okay, if they go and live safely somewhere, then who knows what they're going to do? Maybe they'll come back with an army and they will fight us. We need to... We need to bring them back. We need to get rid of these people and we need to go and make sure that we bring them back to Mecca where we've got them under our eye and under our thumb. So they don't send an army, obviously, because they can't go and fight the the king of Habasha like that. What they actually do is they send two men uh, to go as brokers on this deal of, you know, please, can we have our people back? And one of the men is Amr ibn al-As. May Allah be pleased with him. Obviously, I say may Allah be pleased with him because later on he becomes a Muslim. At the moment now, he is not Muslim. He was an honorable man of the Quraysh and he was also really well-traveled. He would go and he would do business in many different places and actually he knew all the important people in the surrounding area. He sort of, he, he, he knew the kings of the world at that time. So he was the right person to choose. And also he was a, a mastermind in plotting and planning. So when he went, the Quraysh made sure that they gave him some gifts that, that he could take to the king, to the Najashi. And actually what they gave him was the Najashi was known to really like camel skin Um you know, camel hide, you can, you know, you can wear it as a cloak, you can, you know, make a covering of a of, of where you want to sit with it. So they actually got together the best camel skins that they had, and they sent it with him as a gift, basically a bribe, isn't it? They want to butter him up, make sure that they've got him on their side so that he's going to listen. And actually, also what they did is they gave other things to Amr, might I be pleased with him, to give as bribes to the the generals and the bishops, the ones who were in the court of the Najashi. So Amr's plan was that once he'd given all the gifts and he'd spoken to those those generals and the bishops and the leaders of the government um, that would have the ear of the Najashi, that he would say, you know, oh, you've got this group of people who've run away from our country and, you know, we would like them return to us. And please don't bother the Najashi, don't bother the Nagus with this problem. But here we have this gift for him. And so what he's hoping is that when the Najashi gets told about this, that he will listen to his advisors, they will all say or say to him, yes, yes, you know, get this riffraff out of our country and then it will all be smoothly done. But things didn't go as Amr had planned. 
Basically, what happened was that when the officials brought this issue to the Najashi and Amr was there and, you know, as and presenting him with the nice gift of the camel skins. And then when this problem was brought up and he said, you know, you know, just if you could give them back to us, you know, they've they've left our religion. They haven't even followed your religion. They're, they're just troublemakers. I think you should just if you would just give them back to me and I will take them home and this problem will be out of your country. But Najashi actually then says, no, I'm not going to hand over people who have sought refuge in my land without hearing them first. So you can see from this that the Najashi was of a very upright nature. He's not swayed by bribery. It doesn't matter how much he likes camel skin. He's not swayed by bribery. And he does things in a very fair way. And this is a, a, another point that the scholars make that just because he wasn't Muslim didn't mean that he would look at the Muslims in a negative way. He had a faith. He was Christian. But more more than anything, he had an excellent character. So this is a, a lesson for us. Just because somebody isn't a Muslim, it doesn't mean that you don't you don't automatically put any trust in them. You have to look to a person's character to see how their character is to then decide whether they're trustworthy or not. So the Najashi calls for the Muslims to come to his court. He wants to speak to them. He wants to see them and see what they have to say. You can imagine how terrified they'd be. I mean, they were hoping to live a quiet, peaceful life with nobody taking any notice of them. And now they're called, they're called to the court of the, of the ruler. So they appoint a spokesperson. And the person that they chose was Ja'far ibn Abu Talib. So this is the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Now Ja'far, may Allah be pleased with him, was very eloquent and he was incredibly handsome. The Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, said that Ja'far was the most like him, sallallahu alayhi wa in his physical form and in his character. So this shows us, and actually the scholars make this point, that it's a proof that if you're going to choose somebody to speak on behalf of a group, whether it's on behalf of a of a nation or of just an institute or just as a community, then you should choose your most eloquent person. Yes, definitely. But also your most aesthetically pleasing person. In other words, the most presentable person, which I guess is very compatible with kind of like modern media thinking. So anyway, Najashi asks them, obviously with an interpreter because they don't speak each other's language, What's, you know, what's happening? He's saying, you know, what religion are you following? You left the religion of your people and you don't follow my religion. So wh what is happening with you? So Jafar says, we were a people in ignorance, steeped in ignorance, in Jahiliyyah. We used to worship idols and eat dead, rotting meat. We committed abominations. We used to sever our family ties. We were bad to our neighbours. And amongst us, it was the strong that ate the weak. In other words, the strong just ruled over the weak. And we were just like that until Allah sent amongst us a messenger. So he's, Jaffa's laid it out how it was. We used to live a chaotic life. And we used to live in a really bad way. Until Allah sent amongst us a messenger. And then Ja'afar goes on to say, 
We know him. In other words, we know this man who has come as a messenger. We know where he came from. We know his lineage. We know his truthfulness and his trustworthiness. Because remember, even before the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, received that first revelation that made him a prophet, even before when he lived amongst his people for 40 years, he became known as As-Sadiq Al-Amin, the, the trustworthy and the truthful one. And that was his characteristic that he was known by. So Jafar goes on to say, we know all these good things about him. He called us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He prohibited us from worshipping stones and rocks and all these things. And he commanded us to worship none other than Allah alone. And then Jafar goes on to tell the Najashi all the benefits that Islam has brought to them in their lives. So he says, now we worship God alone without partner and without associating anyone with him. We take as forbidden whatever Allah has forbidden us and as permissible what he has allowed us. For these reasons have our people turned against us and have persecuted us to make us give up our religion and return from the worship of God to the worship of idols. When they did this, we left for your country and chose you above others, and we hope we will not be harmed in your country, O King. So you can see the eloquence and the reasoning that Jaffa puts into his speech to the king. And Najashi, he understands all these things because as a Christian, he has a way of life. He has a faith. Whereas the Qurayshis, they don't have that faith and they don't have a way of life. They just live in that chaotic jahiliyyah, that chaotic ignorance. Now, Najashi recognizes all the aspects of Islam because this is Christianity and they're all the things that Christians are supposed to uphold as well. So then the Najashi says to, to the Muslims, did you bring anything? with with you of what your messenger has brought in other words he wants to hear what you know some of the words of the quran so then jafar may Allah be pleased with him he recites the beginning of surah maryam where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and make mention of mary in the book when she withdrew from her people unto a place towards the east and secluded herself from them and we have sent unto her our spirit, and it appeared unto her in the likeness of a perfect man. She said, I take refuge from you in the most merciful, if you are righteous. He said, I am none other than a messenger from your Lord, that I may bestow on you a son most pure. She said, how can there be for me a son when no man has touched me? nor am I unchaste. He said, even so shall it be. Your Lord says, it is easy for me that we may make him a sign for mankind and a mercy from us. And it is a thing already decided. So now this is being recited in the Arabic by Jafar to Najashi. And Najashi, while he's listening to these words in Arabic, he doesn't understand them. But he starts to weep. And then when 
it gets translated into his language and he hears it in a translation, then he starts to weep all over again. And at this point, the Najashi says that this recitation and the message of Isa salam, Jesus peace be upon him, is the same and from the same source. And at that point, he says, I refuse to hand over these Muslims to you, to Amr ibn al-As. So Amr is very upset when he hears what the Nidashi says. But being a very clever man, he doesn't say anything then at that point, but he thinks overnight and comes up with a plan. He decides that he will tell the Nagus, the Najashi, what the Muslims really think of Jesus, peace be upon him, because he knows that the Muslims consider Isa to be a slave, which is an indication that Amr knew something about Christianity and the high position that they give Isa Now, he doesn't believe in any of this. He's just trying to cause problems and get things to turn around to, to come to the way he wants them. So he goes back to Najashi and says, you know, before you decide to let them stay in your country, I want you to know something. What they say about Jesus, they say that he was an abd, a slave. Now, abd in the Qurayshi way of thinking, in that jahiliya, that, that ignorant way of thinking, is an incredibly low thing. I mean, they, they treat their slaves worse than they treat their, their animals. So they obviously didn't understand that even in Christianity, there's this idea of a person being a servant or a slave of God. So the Christians were used to that idea, Abdullah, of being an honorable thing. But the Najashi calls the Muslims back. I mean, goodness, I can't imagine how terrified they must have been. Calls them back and says, what do you say about Jesus, peace be upon him, about Isa alayhi salam? So at which point you could think to yourself, oh, my gosh, you know, their life is on the line. Maybe they'll just kind of twist their words a little bit so it, look, it doesn't look so bad. But Jafar says, because he's a spokesperson, and he says, we say what our Prophet says. Our Prophet says that he is a slave of Allah, his messenger and his spirit and his word, which he cast into Mary, the Blessed Virgin. So even though they don't know which way it's going to go, whether the Najashi is going to like what they're saying, the Muslims stick to the truth no matter what. Their trust in Allah is so great that they know that they have the truth on their side. They will say the truth and then their trust is that Allah will protect them from any harm. So when Najashi hears what Jafar says about Isa Islam, Najashi says, Jesus, peace be upon him, didn't say anything more about himself than that. And he says to the Quraysh that have come, those two men that have come, you know, go away and take your gifts back with you. I don't want what you've brought. And these Muslims can stay in my country peacefully and safely. Now, the bishops, the priests of Najashi didn't really like what they heard. They had wanted to get the Muslims out of the country, but Najashi had said he was going to give protection, and that was the end of the matter. So the Muslims that were there in Abyssinia, in Habisha, they were able to stay. And actually, they stayed there for seven years. And this was, by this time, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, had also already emigrated himself from Mecca, but he had gone to Medina, to Yathrib. But you can see that they stayed there, and this was by the 
commanded the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and only when the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, gave them permission to leave Ethiopia and come to Medina, did they leave. So again, this kind of goes hand in hand with that understanding that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, his long-term plan, his wisdom in that long-term plan of having a base for the Muslims in another part of the you know, that was nearby Arabia, but not in Arabia, in another country, so that in case they needed some safe haven, that they could have gone there. Um, and the fact that they stayed there all those years, obviously after the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, had traveled to Medina with all the battles and everything that were happening, they didn't take part in those battles, but they had stayed in Habisha, in Ethiopia, by the order of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. So that ends the the story or the, the narration or, and the account of what happened to the Muslims who, who emigrated to Habisha. And next time we'll have a look and see what was going on in Mecca while these Muslims were having to speak to the Najashi and, you know, Jafar was making his, his eloquent speech to the Nagus. So inshallah, see you all next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك